Well, again, I say to you, kinfolk, happy Sunday. Children of God, let us pray. Almighty God, you've revealed your truth to all of us, and you have kept your truth for babes and infants, for people like us. Make us children, Lord, of your word, and give us a word of truth. Amen. That line that Jesus prays, that they may all be one, that's our motto in the United Church of Christ. That movement to which we have joined ourselves, really actually it was kind of our grandparents that signed us up for it, took out a lifetime membership, passed it on to us. The UCC is uh, about 850,000 Christians in the United States of America, coming from a variety of backgrounds. We continue to work together to help draw the circle wider, day after day. St. John's Church, we're part of that movement. That they may all be one. Would that it were that simple. There was a big fight in the 1950s when they were creating the United Church of Christ. Well, there was more than one fight in the 1950s. But there was an argument. I have all of the documents. I've inherited so many documents from UCC pastors who've gone before me. And so I've got the Council on Church Union. I've got all of their minute meeting notes. And I have the minute notes. I have the meeting notes from the General Synod of the United Church of Christ. That was General Synod number one. Uh, this year we're up to 34, I think. I'm not sure. But... Um, there was an argument whether we should be called the United Church of Christ or the Uniting Church of Christ. And I'd have opted for uniting because I think the work is ongoing. As of last count, there's 41,000 different Christian denominations in the world. That's a lot, man. Uh, as the old Baptist preacher in Memphis used to say, Jesus is coming back and he wants a bride, not a harem. Um, well, we're working at it. When you pastor a church, you inherit a lot of tchotchkes and knickknacks and stuff from the ministers that have gone before you. Uh, that's actually where I got this shirt. I have no idea whose it was, uh, but it's mine now. I got it three churches ago, and I just took it with me. Um, one of the former pastors of this church seemed to be given over to uh, liturgical adornments and jewelry and whatnot. That's not really my speed. Um, and he had, they, she, he, I don't know who it was, but they had this cool pendant. I'm sure there's a fancy word for it. I don't know. But Jeffrey, do you know what they call it when you wear a special? So this is the UCC logo. And uh, it's a beautiful, lovely logo. Um, it says United Church of Christ, Christ the King over the world. And then underneath it, it says that they may all be one. That they may all be one. Um, and it can be yours for the low, low price of $19.99. Um, or see, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't sell stuff out of the pastor's office. But that, that they may all be one is such a beautiful sentiment. And it's from the lips of our founder, our savior, our master, Jesus Christ, that they may all be one. And that seems like such a distant dream today in a church that is so bitterly divided over such stupid things. That they may all be one. Well, I think that there is a way through that for those of us who are of a more open-minded bent. But we have to begin by remembering who we are and whose we are and how we were created. So today I have some good news and I have some bad news. And we're going to start with the good news. Always with the good news in church, right? Good news, the church says. Have you heard the good news? Have you heard the good news the evangelist says to the people trapped on the public bus 
uh, with them. <laughs> the people in the train car, have you heard the good news? Um, the good news is this, God loves you and there's nothing that you can do to change that. That's the good, good news. The good news is that behaving in a good and moral fashion is pleasing to God and it brings delight to the Creator. Remember why we do these worship services on Sunday morning. It's to praise God, it's to give God praise, express our gratitude for all that God has done. The good news is that everyone possesses within them a moral compass and the capacity to know good from evil, and that everyone can behave morally, if they choose to do so, toward people and animals and the earth and themselves and everything else in creation. And if that's not a cause for celebration, I don't know what it is. I mean, come on, look at it. Imagine if we lived in a world, uh, a, a planet populated by terrible, giant, evil ogres. And uh, the ogres were these big, nasty monsters, and they'd go around smashing people's bird baths, stealing tomatoes out of their gardens, and making a mess. And that the thing you'd say, I, mean, I can't believe these ogres running around yelling at the squirrels. And the scientists would say, well, to be, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, ogres are born without a moral compass. They don't, they don't know good from bad. They're compelled to, purely to do mischief and evil. This is their, this is their nature. Say, oh, rats, ogres. But we don't live in a world with ogres. We live in a world that is populated by human beings. And while they may occasionally steal our tomatoes and yell at our dog, and take away our health care. Um, the truth of the matter is that they're still humans. They're still human beings. They are imbued with a moral compass. They are inherently good, and they were created to do good. And whether we like it or not, they were made in God's image, and God said that they were good. And so thank God there's always this natural capacity for doing moral good in the world. Outweighs the capacity to do harm, so. Nobody is an ogre. See the human. Now for the bad news. And the bad news, I think, is not so much bad as it is perhaps intimidating. The bad news is this. Being a moral person does not make you a Christian. Being a good person does not make you a Christian. Being good and moral are wonderful things, and we ought to do that, that and celebrate them, and celebrate the people who do them, give them flowers. But being a follower of Christ requires more than just being good. It requires us to model our faith and behavior after Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of things in this world that I think are moral, maybe, but they're unchristlike, perhaps. Submit a couple of examples. I think it is. Um, I think it's perfectly moral to have anger, righteous anger, to, against someone who has wronged you. I don't think there's anything immoral about getting righteously angry at somebody who's harmed you. And nobody has any inherent right to your forgiveness. This is something that people get sideways. Nobody has a right to your forgiveness. But to forgive those who hurt us is to emulate Jesus Christ. 
So there's the bind. You choose for yourself this day who you want to follow. I think that it's not immoral, out of a sense of mental self-preservation, to pass by the poor on your way to a work or in a meeting or something that you have to get done. For God's sakes, millions of us do it every single day. If it was immoral to pass by a poor person or somebody sleeping rough in the streets or begging for money, then I don't know how any of us would survive. There's nothing in the social contract that I'm aware of that says that those people's problems are necessarily your problems. I wish that it weren't that way. Many moral people who I know don't give money to panhandlers. It's not my place to say that they're immoral. I think there's nothing immoral to simply want to do your job and get to work and spend your daily hours earning your daily bread and do little more than pay your taxes in order to help the poor. I think that you can say that that's moral. But I don't know that it's Christ-like because to emulate Jesus Christ means to serve the poor, to honor the poor, to learn from the poor, to ask for their blessings, to love them, to get to know them. That's how we emulate Jesus Christ. It's just a couple of examples. And this is adult stuff. This is heavy stuff. It's not simple. Um, you have to live to learn this kind of thing. This is like, I think, how some people, grown-up people, grown-ups, what a critically endangered species in this country. <laughs> grown-ups. Uh, they understand that just because something is perfectly legal doesn't make it morally acceptable. We've got ourselves a whole Congress full of people who cheat on their taxes. Now, they don't use that word cheat. I'm only using that word because I'm not taken to euphemisms when I'm in the pulpit. I like to speak plainly. Uh, we don't say cheat. We don't say lie. Uh, we use words like loopholes, loopholes in the tax code or whatever. And uh, then we've got a whole cheerleader section in our country that says, well, you know, it's not illegal. If it's not illegal, it's perfectly fine. It's not a foul if the ref didn't catch it. We find out that we had a, uh, a former president who cheated on his taxes year after year after year. People say, well, that just means he's smart. Okay, is it legal? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go to law school. I went to seminary. This is like also like the people that call you up on the phone and try to sell you stuff that you don't need. Um, try to sell you an extra warranty for your car. You don't need that. It's junk, it's a scam. They prey on people uh, who are exhausted and worn out and are trying to just get to the next day. They prey on them. Uh, and what they're doing is completely legal but totally immoral. Now, by the same token, there are many things that are entirely illegal, but that are also moral. A young black woman in those same 1950s that I just spoke about, sitting down at a segregated lunch counter, breaking the law. But she has a moral obligation to break that law. Nelson Mandela broke a whole heap of laws in South Africa. They put him in jail for 27 years. Much of that time was spent in solitary confinement. Was he immoral for breaking those laws? 
Many churches in West Michigan aided and abetted escaped, freed, liberated Americans who'd been in slavery, trying to get them to Canada in violation of the Federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1851. They were compelled to break that law because they were moral people. Jesus Christ broke the law over and over and over again. He was put on death row for that, executed by the government. Was he justified in breaking those laws? All right, so there's the conundrum. As disciples, we need to constantly ask ourselves, what is legal, what is moral, and what is Christian? What is legal, what is moral, what is Christian? And we have been given tools for our discernment in this. They're embodied and practiced in our sacraments, baptism and communion. I think of them as solidarity and protocols. Solidarity protocols. It's very hard to be alone against the law, the law of the state, that is. They have got themselves quite a monopoly on violence these days. And it's hard to do the moral thing all by yourself. And it's impossible to be a Christian alone. Now, we have solidarity. And this is, I think, the encouragement that Jesus is trying to give his disciples when he's praying in front of them to God for their strength when he's gone from their sight. The way we express our solidarity is through the sacrament of communion. As much as I stand up here and say it, I don't think that people really understand how transgressive taking communion really is. It's wild. Every single time we eat that bread and drink from that cup, we are saying that we are one body. One body. No escaping it. The hand cannot say to the eye or the foot, I have no need of you. We knit ourselves together. My hands are yours, my eyes are yours, your feet are mine. I am absolutely compelled to be with you, one in the body of Christ, that they may all be one. And it's not some kind of cosmic spiritual unity. It's not like the rotary pledge. It's not some kind of figmentary consistency of belief. It's not a symbol of our shared friendship as much as I love you all. It's a demonstration of our literal, physical unity, one body. You eat that bread, you drink that cup, and we are bound together, physically, such that when your body suffers, mine suffers. When you are in jail, I am in jail. When you turn away from the path of righteousness and love and choose instead to commit to the path of some common enemy, I must attend with you on that journey. One body means that. One body. And that's why we do communion. Solidarity. Not only with the people in this room, but with all the Christians who came before us. All those who will follow after us. When you eat that bread, you're pledging your body to their bodies. Physical thing. The second part is the protocol. 
protocol, of solidarity and protocol. The protocol is our way, it's our way of being in the world, it's our practice. Remember, we have a religious practice, not a religious event, not a religious uh, conversion, not even a religious awakening, a practice, discipline. The things we do. When I learned how to hunt in my late teens, the one message that was drilled into my brain is that the actual business of harvesting an animal represents about 5% of the hunt. The other 95% is the preparation, which can take a year, and then what comes after the shot to ethically harvest that animal. And that the shot itself, the, the sitting in the blind, the dialing in, all of that, it's a very small portion of the hunt. Likewise with our faith, it's a practice. Maybe 5% of it happens here on Sunday morning. But I know, because we're one body, that 95% of it's happening out there in the world. So we have baptism, the vows, the baptismal vows that we take and we give to our children and we teach them to each other. Now you all remember your baptism vows, right? Word for word, of course, right? That's okay. I'll remind you. If you were baptized as an infant, your parents or your guardians promised to share them with you and the, the church agreed to help. I'll tell you, I didn't, I, I didn't remember my baptismal vows until I was in my third year of seminary. So it's okay. And then after when they ordained me, they made me take a bunch of extra vows too on top of that. Um, I was, uh, at one point in my life, I was living in the occupied Palestinian territories over in uh, Israel-Palestine. And Palestine is a region of the Levant that's been under military occupation for 70 years. Uh, it's the longest military occupation in modern history. Uh, and so they've had to do, they've had to build infrastructure in order to reinforce this military occupation. Imagine if we were occupying Baghdad for 70 years, and you, you'll start to get a sense of what it is costing Israel uh, to, to do this. And so they built a huge wall that cuts all the way around the occupied Palestinian territory. This wall is an absolute uh, feat of engineering. It'll remain as a scar on the face of the Holy Land for thousands of years, unfortunately. Um, and they call it, in Palestine, they call it the apartheid wall. It's concrete. And this wall, if you've ever seen it in Israel, it makes the Berlin Wall look like a little kid's sandcastle. Uh, the, 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 the apartheid wall in Israel is something like 150 times longer than the Berlin Wall. And in most places, it is three times as tall. It's about 90 feet tall. Um, so it's, it's colossal. Now on the uh, Israel side of the wall, it's quite lovely. They've sort of built embankments and there's gardens and trees. So you don't, if you're in Israel, it's, it's, it's fascinating, but you don't really see it unless you're looking for it. Well, Palestinians, of course, are not allowed to approach the wall. Um, so on the Palestinian side, it's completely covered in graffiti. That's their act of resistance. They go to it in the night and they paint on it. And I was, uh, walking along that wall, and somebody had spray-painted the baptismal covenant of the Episcopal Church in America on the wall. Some wily Episcopalian, one of those beautiful frozen chosen, 
busted out of the shackles of their own faith tradition and took up a can of spray paint and spray painted their baptismal vows on that wall. God bless you, Episcopalians. I know you have it in you. I know you're part of the resistance when you're not beating an Episcopalian. They've gone up and they've spray painted on that wall. Do you promise to resist evil and oppression? That's one of the vows. It was 100 degrees in the shade on that day. And when I read those words, I felt like I'd been drenched in freezing water. Here's the thing. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means a lot more than just being a moral person or a good person. It means holding fast to our protocols. The things we were promised by us or of us or for us during our baptism. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, why on earth did my parents sign me up for that when I got baptized? I've got you. We'll go ahead and review our baptismal covenant here together real quick. Let's decide how we can better live into this agreement, that we may all be one. I'll take it slow. And take a minute after each one of these protocols and think about your life, what's keeping you busy, the way we treat other people, and about our behavior in the world. You can close your eyes if it helps, but you don't have to, all right. Here's the first, here's the first of our protocols, practices. Do you renounce the power of evil and desire the freedom of new life in Christ? Do you promise by the grace of God to be Christ's disciple, to follow in the way of our Savior? Do you promise to resist oppression and evil, to show love and justice, and to witness to the work and word of Jesus Christ as best you're able? Do you promise, according to the grace given you, to grow in the Christian faith and to be a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ? And do you promise to celebrate Christ's presence further Christ's mission in all the world. Okay, that's it. That's it. I could just shout, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and just pull out a super soaker and hit you all. And you <laughs> get you good, right? In the name of Jesus, boom. Remember the tribe. All right, now. When we have fun and we walk around after baptism, sometimes I'll take an aspergillum, I'll take a branch out of a yew tree or something and sprinkle water on you. People or I'll take water out of the font and throw it at the little kids who are sitting up here. We have a baptism and a time of celebration. I'll say, remember your baptism, child of God. If you are not yet baptized, recall the promises that will be given to you. It's fun, but it's strong medicine. I'm doing that thing. The other day I had to have, I had to take Natalie to the doctor a few days ago for her second, um, her second, her two-year-old visit. Well, child, she had to get a shot. She had to get it. Uh, vaccine. And uh, she's my third, so I'm starting to figure out what to do. So the needle came out, and I'm holding her, and as soon as she got that shot, I stuffed a piece of Hershey's chocolate right in her mouth. Just boom! Chocolate. She was just like, you could see her little brain just like, wah, wah, whoa, wah, you know? And she said, ah, mmm. No, no tears. It was great. I think I'm finally getting it dialed in. But I'm doing that a little bit. I've got to do that a little bit. As, a, as the physician of, of faith, I have to 
get you back into your vows and I'm throwing water on these little children and I'm doing this stuff and it's strong medicine because I'm reminding them that they have a responsibility that is very, very heavy, that is very heavy. Resisting evil and oppression isn't something that's often very fun. And so I'm trying to give you a little bit of chocolate with that uh, vaccine. Wow. Our protocols were given to us by Jesus Christ. We didn't make them up. They're not of this world. And they're not just about being moral people. The way of Jesus Christ came to us from the Creator. The way of Jesus Christ came to us from the Creator and was expressed through human language so that we might understand it like an architect trying to explain blueprints to a six-year-old child. Jesus Christ is trying to help us understand the hidden architecture and fundamental arithmetic of creation. And language is a, is a poor tool to try to express this. But our protocols, our way, our promises we didn't make them up. They came to us from elsewhere. Okay, I know at the beginning of the sermon I said maybe this is bad news. Well, I lied. <laughs> I lied in a sermon. I submit myself to the discipline of the imperium. No, this isn't bad news at all, actually. It's actually wonderfully good news. I'll tell you why. Because doing these things, following Jesus Christ, can be about the easiest thing that any of us will ever do. And it is going to make your life easier immeasurably better. Put this in your pocket. If someone tells you that it's hard to be a Christian, you should treat that advice with suspicion. Because Jesus says to those same disciples, the same disciples that he was praying for, the same disciples where he says to them, you're going to be scattered, persecuted, hunted and chased to the end of the world. He says to them, same Jesus, the same disciples, he says to them, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find what? Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you will find really hard work and a billion rules and laws to obey. No, he doesn't say that. No. Nope. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you will find rest. You will find rest. Not just rest, he says, but rest for your soul. The kind of rest where you can lay down on the grass and look up at the sky and finally know without a shadow of a doubt that everything is actually going to be okay. That this is the best of all possible worlds. As baffling as that may seem, you can know that everything is going to be as it ought to be. No more anxiety, no more worrying, no more anguish, and greatest of all, no more fear. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and you will find rest for your souls. Remember that it was the scribes and lawyers and the fundamentalists who delighted in the rules. Rules. They had lots of rules and schedules and dramatic displays of piety and religious relics and really big churches 
and a lot of popularity and they had icons and celebrity and they really enjoyed rule and order, rank and file. This person is in this category. This person is in that category. They loved their rules. They loved their distinctions. But we Christians, we little Christs, we Christ followers, we delight in rest, in spirit. We don't delight in the categories of people. We delight in the people. He adds, as though we might be confused by this, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. A heavy burden is being borne down beneath the suffocating and crushing weight of this world. A heavy burden is being made to categorize human beings into different sections of the population so that you can figure out how you feel about them. That's a heavy burden. That's a lot of accounting that you're not getting paid to do. A heavy burden is being the unpaid curator of the museum of your own life. A heavy burden is being self-made, being alone. A heavy burden is being dependent on nobody but yourself, the mercy of the world. But a light burden is surrender. Surrendering your life to the simple way of Jesus Christ, easy and light. And after we make that daily surrender, because remember, it's a practice, it's a marathon, it's a protocol. Daily surrender, suddenly a lot of really scary things become a lot less scary. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., he told them, he told his followers, stop calling it going to jail. Yes, we're going to jail. Stop calling it, though. Stop calling it going to jail. We're going to start calling it being baptized. And all of a sudden, a lot of his parishioners were a lot less afraid of old Bull Connor. Jesus' yoke is easy because it sets us free to have the faith that many of us had, perhaps at the moment of our baptism. The faith of an infant, even if you were baptized as an infant. What's the faith of an infant? The faith of an infant looking up at their adults, at their guardians, at their sponsors, maybe at their pastor, and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are safe, safe, safe. The faith of Natalie, as I hold her in my arms after she gets that vaccine and she looks at me and despite the pain of that moment, she knows that she's safe because she has faith. That's the faith of the infant, that you are loved, you are safe, you are holy, you are good, you were made by God Almighty and called good, and you are loved by the only God in the universe the way that you are. And God is the only one with power over life and death. That's the simple thing that inspires the Christian faith, that I think is at the root of what Jesus is desperately trying to use language to convince us of, that you are loved. You are loved the way you are by God. And no mortal being can change that. And you have solidarity here at St. John's, here in this church with these people that you found. You've, you've got it. You found it. You have solidarity with these people. And you have a very simple protocol for your behavior. It's only a few lines, and it all boils down to love. Jesus Christ to guide you. Easiest, lightest, most restful, I think most carefree way to be in the world. 
And uh, the other fact of this matter, and not to put too fine a point on it, is that this way of being in the world is the only thing that is going to save the world. We're going to save the world. Did you know that? It's in the Bible. We're going to save the world, kinfolk. We're going to save the world starting right here and starting, I think, right now. Amen? Amen.